Okay, right, if you uh, go for your Qurans, uh, sorry, your Bibles. Uh, I get confused, yeah, I'm at the mosque on Thursday. Yeah, sorry, I, I get confused. Go for your Bibles. Now, we return tonight after quite a long gap. It's, it's, it's been quite a few weeks, but we return to the series we were doing on demon, demonology. Uh, everything you ever wanted to know about demons, but were afraid to ask. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll just give a very quick very quick re recap on the kind of area that we've covered. This is the sixth talk. There's quite a few more to come after this. Uh, but this is talk number six. Now, so far, for those of you who haven't been here, you know, sort of like when we started the series, we've, you know, we've looked at the whole questions. What are demons? Where do they come from? You know, we've dealt with all that. Um, we've looked at sort of uh, a lot of the false teaching that goes around about the whole subject and you can go to churches and you can go to Christian meetings and, and we've seen that a lot of the teaching that goes out on, on this subject is a kind of a combination of little bits of the words of God, uh, little bits of people's own subjective experience plus quite a bit of what people have actually got from demons themselves. Because of course demons talk often when you're casting them out and uh, you know such is the scene today that I mean a lot of Bible teachers and Christians, they actually build up a demonology based on what demons have told them, you know, of course, which is absolutely crazy. And of course, as always, what we're trying to do is to get down to what does the Bible teach about demons. So we've, we've covered quite a few areas. Now you'll remember that where we were starting to move into uh, was the, you know, the whole area of sort of like, okay, when you've got someone who's demonized, what do you do about it? And you'll remember that last time, uh, the talk we did, I said that demonization will always come in one of two categories. And the categories are quite simply this. There is what I called obvious demonization. When it is obvious, it's so clear that someone is demonized. And tonight we're going to move on to when demonization is not obvious and when you have to discern it. And that's, that's the area we're going to start touching tonight. But you remember last time we were seeing that even when you talk about, you know, there's obvious demonizations, there can be times when it's obvious that someone's got demons. That even there you get this morass of false teaching and crazy ideas. And we went through loads and loads of things, which whereas they may well be caused by the influence of a demon inside of someone, there could be hundreds of other things that could cause the same thing. And you'll remember Remember that last week what we saw was basically two things. Firstly, you can only conclude that there is obvious demonization when somebody is clearly having supernatural things happen to them which aren't of the Lord. That is the only time when you can be absolutely sure that you're dealing with someone who's got demons. And uh, it's no use this thing about, you know, well, of course, if you meet someone who's a nervous wreck, well, they've got to be demonized, haven't they? That's rubbish. You know, they might just be nervous wrecks. I mean, we're quite capable of becoming nervous wrecks uh, without kind of demons helping us, thank you very much. And it's like a lot of teaching. I mean, it's like, say you've got some really got a simple, you know, really struggling with different sins. And I say, oh, well, it's demons doing it. And we've seen, no, again, absolute rubbish. I mean, we're quite capable of sin without the help of demons. You know, I mean, sin doesn't come from demons. Our sin comes from our own hearts. And so the first thing we saw last time is that you can only conclude that you obviously have a case of demonization if the person is clearly experiencing supernatural things which are not of the Lord and aren't biblical. 
And the second thing we saw last week was that statistically, right, if you go through the Bible, statistically it is only very rarely that you get obvious demonization. And in fact, one of the only examples in the Bible that we saw where you could clearly say this person is demonized and there's no, no need for discernment, it's obvious, uh, was the, the guy, the, the gathering demoniac. Do you remember the one who was breaking chains? Absolutely off his head, living in tombs, he was cutting himself with knives. But we noted that the only way you could tell that that was obvious demonization was simply because he had supernatural strength. And we saw that demonization to that extent is rare. And I mean, the chances are that probably statistically you might see it once or twice in your entire life, if at all. The vast majority of demonization is extremely low key and it is not obvious in any way at all. All right? So, therefore, we now need to move on to what the Bible calls the gift of discerning of spirits. If you've got someone who's asking for prayer and they're going through all kinds of problems, you know, and sort of like they're sitting there breaking chains, you do not need to pray for the gift of discernment. It is obvious. I remember once praying for one girl, she was a Satanist, and there was about five of us trying to hold her chair on the ground. All right? When you get people levitating, you've clearly got demons there, because that is a directly supernatural thing. But most occasions of demonization is not at all obvious. So most people have, as it were, demons unawares. And in Hebrews, there's um, you know, a lovely little verse, and it talks about people who have entertained angels unawares. And there are occasions in the Old Testament uh, where people, they were in the presence of angels and they didn't realise it. Now, if you can entertain angels unawares, you can certainly have demons unawares as well. And therefore, we need to look into this specific gift called the discerning of spirits. And let me say, right at the outset, the mere fact that there is a specific gift of the Holy Spirit as we're going to see, which enables you to know when demons are active. The mere fact that such a gift exists proves the point that most demonization is not obvious. Because if it was obvious, why would you need a specific gift of the Spirit in order to discern when somebody has demons? Now, if you uh, go to 1 Corinthians 12, let's just... Uh, see where, where Paul talks about this particular gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, as you know, this is, you know, the list of, um, or one of the lists of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, basically, we just want um, verse 10. Um, it says, to another, the working of miracles. So there's a gift. To another, prophecy. There's a gift. And then you get here, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, or in some versions, the discernment of spirits. All right? And there is a gift of the Holy Spirit available to us when we need it. Now, in order to help you understand it, when you get this word here, distinguish, or the word discernment in some Bibles, all right, the Greek word that gets translated in that way is a Greek word, it's diakresis. 
all right? And what it means is to distinguish. So in fact, my version has got it absolutely right. It means to distinguish or to determine by way of judgment or to decide. And that's what the word means. To distinguish, to determine or to decide. Now, it'll be helpful to see one or two other places where the Bible uses exactly the same word, but translates it a bit differently. If you go over to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, let me say to newcomers, you haven't a hope of following me in the Bible. It's going to be far too quick. That's why I read every verse out. So if you get lost, don't worry, because every verse I turn to, I will actually read out. Now, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, we read this. Uh, and it's the writer talking about the importance of the Word of God, all right? And uh, what he says, he's, he's saying about, you know, that you've got to get into the Word of God deeply. When you're a new Christian, you know, like you drink milk, just the basics, no particular hassle. But as you grow, you need strong meat, you need to really get into the Word of God. And he says, but solid food, i.e. real depth of Bible study, solid food is for the mature for those who have their faculties trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. Now that's not talking about evil spirits, that's talking about how we behave. And it's important to realise that we need to discern what our hearts are telling us. You think, hey, I want to do that. But is that good or is it evil? Can you see? There, to distinguish what our hearts are saying. Uh, go back into 1 Corinthians, but go over to 1 Corinthians 14. This one might surprise you a bit. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 29. Now here, Paul is talking about the rules for prophets who prophesy in a meeting. But what he says is this. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Or in some versions it says, let the others test what is said. Now, we're always going on in this fellowship about testing everything by the Word of God. Nothing can be accepted as being from the Lord unless it passes the test of conformity to the teaching of the Bible. And what's interesting is that, you know, when we say about test it against the Bible, weigh it against the Bible, the word is diacresis. It is discern it. Can you see? It's just giving you an idea of the meaning of this word, dis you know, to um, discern, to distinguish, to determine whether something is good or bad or whatever, okay? And basically, what this gift of discernment of spirits boils down to is this. It's the ability, in any one instance, given by the Holy Spirit, the ability, in any one instance, as the Holy Spirit leads you, to know the cause of something. To know the cause of something. Whether it's behaviour in someone or whether it's situations that befall them. And the cause, anything that happens, the cause can be from any of three areas. Now, it's vital to understand this because it's at this point that so much teaching about discernment and evil spirits goes absolutely wrong. The gift of discernment 
enables you to know the cause of something, but the cause can be from one of three areas. Firstly, something can be being caused by the Spirit of God himself, the discernment of spirits. God is a spirit. So the Holy Spirit can be causing things. Secondly, the cause of anything could be from the human spirit, something that is purely a natural thing, nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, nothing to do with evil spirits, is he? Discerning that which is caused by merely the human spirit. And then, thirdly, discerning that which is caused by demons or demonic spirits, all right? So there you've got it. The discernment of spirits, in whatever situation you need it, or in whatever situation the Holy Spirit gives it, it's the ability to know the cause of something, and whether the cause is the Spirit of God, the human spirit, or demonic spirits. And it is only when the cause is demonic spirits that deliverance ministry is needed. Can you see? And a lot of people, they get the idea that the discernment of spirits is purely so that you know when demons are around. It is not purely so that you know what, you know, when demons are around. The discernment of spirits is knowing whether God is doing something, whether it's merely the result of human behaviour or whether it is the result of demonic spirits. Now let's just, just raise this one question. When we talk about discerning, for instance, that which is of the Spirit of God. You might be thinking, well look, um, surely if something is of the Holy Spirit, it's got to be obvious, isn't it? Why would you ever need to use discernment to find out if God is doing something? Alright. Let me give you an example to give you the idea of the kind of application here. Let's, let's say that a Christian, someone, they're following the Lord, and uh, let's say maybe they're having everything go wrong. I mean, their life is becoming a disaster zone, all right? I mean, that you know, they're getting the exact opposite to what they pray for ten minutes after they prayed it. You see what I mean? And everything is going wrong, okay? Uh, maybe uh, they're in business, maybe their business is collapsing, uh, maybe they've got desperate money problems that they can't get out of. It could be anything, all right? But let's take a situation like that. You've got a Christian and their life is falling to bits. Everything is going wrong, okay? Now then, it could be one of three things. That could be of satanic origin. It could be that in a situation like that, that Satan is really attacking and that there needs to be prayer to counter what Satan's doing, all right? It could be that. But it could be, let's say, take a business going down the shoe, or let's say someone in severe money problems and they can't sort themselves out. It could be their own stupidity. Because if you spend more than you get, you're going to get into money problems. So that would be purely discerning. That's something to do with the human spirit. This is nothing to do with Satan. It's merely their own stupidity. But in a situation like that, it could also be the Lord. Sometimes you go through situations where it seems that you're getting the exact opposite to what you might call blessing. And in actual fact, it can be God himself doing it. In which case, it's no use 
coming against the devil and, oh, we'll pray against this. Because, I mean, you know, believe you me, if it's the Lord doing it to you, you can pray it away all you like. It's not going to do anything at all. Now, why might the Lord be doing something like that? Well, I mean, for instance, it could be, it could be like discipline because there's some uh, undealt with sin in your life, something that the Lord's been putting his finger on and you're saying no to him. You know, a sin that is corners and you're refusing to admit to. Uh, there might be rebellion, in, you know, in your life against God and you know it's there but you're not putting it right. Uh, maybe there's, you know, you resent someone. You know, you've got real resentment in your heart and you're not willing to put that right. Well, in such a situation, all right, I mean, we all know when we were kids, Dad knew when to get Tickler out and the Lord knows when to discipline us, what I call the laying on of hands at the other end. And so sometimes God, in order to bring us to repentance of something, could indeed make everything go wrong <coughs> until we get the message, hey, God is not going to bless me until I put this thing right. That could be one reason for God making everything go wrong. But on the other hand, it might just be the Lord bringing us into a greater maturity. Because after all, if everything's going your way, that does not increase faith. When everything goes our way, that increases our dependence on ourselves. It's only when everything goes wrong that we throw ourselves on the Lord and start to actually trust Him, is He? So therefore, what we're seeing is that you could indeed have a situation where, say a Christian was going through a really tough time and everything externally is going wrong, alright? It might be a satanic attack, it might be something they've brought on themselves, their own stupidity, or it might be God dealing with them in some way. Now, the gift of discernment of spirits enables you to know exactly what is going on. And uh, some time ago, um, a bloke got in touch with me, um, and he was converted, apparently, when I gave my testimony at the FGB, although I hadn't heard from him. I didn't even know that he got converted that night. But he got in touch with me, oh, it was about 18 months later, and, um, you know, and he wanted to come and talk and that. And he was a stockbroker or something like that. And, I mean, his work was, you know, it looking like he was heading for being out of work and, you know, his firm was, was going through calamity. And he was really in, in great fear of losing his job. And uh, he came to me, and the input that he'd had from other people was that this is Satan attacking you. You know, th you know, this is the devil. We've got to be praying about this. Well, he obviously wasn't convinced, or why would he have come to me? I, you know, I don't know. And I spent the evening chatting to him, and we prayed together. And I told him, I said, this is God doing it to you. I said, the Lord is doing this. And it's, it's, it's because you've really got to decide, are you going to be a disciple? And, and for the first time in his life, and the first time since he got saved, he was in trouble. Everything had always gone his way. Successful businessman, loads and loads of money, happy family. You know, the sort of bloke that joins most churches and he's an elder in three weeks, you know? <laughs> and, and disaster was coming upon him, and I said, this is God working in you. Can you see, that is an application of the gift of discerning of spirits, all right? So it's when you can look into a situation and know the cause of it. Is it something that the Lord's doing? Is it something that Satan's doing? Or is it just something that is of the human spirit? And I'd put a fourth category in here. And the fourth category I'd put in is this, just simply things that happen 
that are of no significance one way or the other, all right? Last week, our car had to go into the mechanic. Now, one thing I've noticed amongst Christians so often, the car goes wrong. Oh, what's God saying? Oh, oh, goodness, goodness, we've got to pray about this. What's God saying? I'll tell you what he's saying. Get it mended. You <laughs> see? And, and that it, it, it can be equally easy to read the most incredible significance in, into things that would happen to us whether we're converted or not. There is no promise in the Bible that guarantees that, for instance, our cars will never be, you know, need to be repaired. You know, can you see? And yet some people, the tiniest thing that happens, and they're off, look, you know, they're trying to discern it. What, what is this? With things like that, don't bother trying to discern it. That's just normal part and parcel of what happens in life. So we've got to be careful that we don't end up flying into this ridiculous super spirituality that some people are so prone to. An awful lot of what happens is just the normal, random course of events in the universe. One of which is the law of en you know, entropy says that once your car was new, well, it might not have been new when you bought it, but whatever car you drive, once it was new, now it isn't the parts of worn. <laughs> and even worse, it might be a, a Austin Rover car, you know, in which case it's going to break down a lot, isn't it? Can you see? Whereas if you get a VW, it's hardly ever in the garage, is it? Can you see, there's no significance particularly in regards to things like that. There are just things that just happen. and don't, don't read any significance into them at all. But obviously, we're, we're dealing now, or, or moving on to the whole thing, how do you know when someone has got demons? All right. So when we're talking about you know, sort of like discerning of spirits. The kind of thing that we're more directly thinking about here isn't the kind of thing where that chap came to me because he thought he was going to lose his job. But it's more like, say you've got someone and, uh, you know, maybe they're, they're suffering from very bad depression. Uh, maybe they're having terrible nightmares. Uh, maybe they've got a real, a real kind of problem with anger or something like that. Anything of that ilk. It, it could be anything, all right? Um, in fact, anything that could be being contributed to by the presence of a demon or demons in, inside them. But what we must immediately remind ourselves of is that, for instance, nightmares, great fear, worry, depression, anxiety, what we've got to understand is that the fact that those things are there doesn't mean that demons are there. Can you see? Things like that can attract demons but just because someone is really anxious or really fearful doesn't mean they have got demons. They might have, but you mustn't assume it. And that is where this gift of the discerning of spirits comes in. So say there's someone really, really anxious, uh, you know, a, a kind of anxiety that is well you know, well above the normal. I mean, we all get anxious here and there, but, you know, these, these people are just nervous wrecks. They're trying to follow the law, but they're just nervous wrecks the whole time. Now then, does that mean they've got demons? Well, what we've seen is that it doesn't mean they've got demons at all, but they might have. You can't conclude that they've got demons because they're a nervous wreck. But you've got to be open that someone in that state might be demonized. And therefore, that's where the discernment of spirits comes in. So that through prayer, you can establish whether the problem is 
a demonic one, i.e. whether there are demons there to deal with, or whether it is purely a problem with that person's own human spirit. Can you see? And it is no use trying to cast demons out of people who ain't got them. Not only is it no use, it is totally counterproductive because it will damage the person you're trying to do it to. I mean, take for instance someone who's got a problem with fear. Now, people who've got a problem with fear are not greatly helped by the suggestion that they've got to have demons cast out if they haven't got demons. Can you see? That would just increase their fear. If they have got demons, cast them out. But can you see the discernment of spirits enables us in any one instance with people to establish whether their problem is of satanic origin or whether it is purely, purely a problem as it were, with their own human spirit, i.e. it's not something in which demons are involved. Now, obviously, if you get people who have ended up demonized, you're going to have a bit of both. You've got a demonic problem there, but remember, the actual problem was not caused by demons. The demons ended up there simply because the problem was there. I mean, sin and problems attract demons. Demons don't cause problems in people, but people's problems attract the demons. So if you've got people who are demonized, then you've got to be aware that you've got two things. You're discerning the demons, but obviously there's a problem in that person's human spirit as well. I, there's a completely human dimension to their problem, but it's been complicated by the fact that demons have ended up in there as well. And that is what the gift of the discernment of spirits is for. It's for other things, as we're going to see in a few moments as well. But the biblical rule of thumb is this. Let's say you've got someone who's come to you or something like that and they want prayer <coughs> and they're in, in all kinds of dire straits or whatever. The biblical rule of thumb that we've established in the prior five talks is this. There must be no preconceived ideas. Unless they sit there levitating or kind of like ripping their metal chair to pieces, you cannot assume they've got demons. If there's nothing overtly supernatural, you cannot assume they've got demons. They might have. So no preconceived ideas and assume nothing. However, the balance of scripture is that in any one instance, the statistical probability is that it isn't a demonic problem. The statistical probability is that they're not demonized it's that they've just got a problem. Now that is where the balance of the Bible lies. Most people are not, never will be, never have been demonized, but some people are. So therefore, the burden of proof must always lie with the assertion, this person has got a demon. Here's he. So when you end up with, you know, trying to help people in that, don't assume demons first, quite the contrary. Only move on to the demon thing, you know, are there demons here, if there is some really clear leading of the Holy Spirit to do so. All right? So, what it boils down to is this. Don't go looking for demons. The early church didn't. Uh, in all Paul's letters to the churches, he hardly mentions them. And in the church today, there's the demonic equivalent of the Reds under the bed syndrome. You know, you kind of got, you know, in the McCarthy, you know, the McCarthy witch hunts in America, under every bed in the USA, behind every door, there was a commie, pinko commie, there to pervert our children. You see what I mean? That was the thing. The reds under the beds. 
and America got obsessed. You know, sort of like the odds are that anyone you walk past in the street was a commie agent, a communist there to bring down the United States. That was absolutely rubbish. They were very, very rare. And so it is with demons as well. Do not assume that demons are under the bed behind every door or anything like that. When people come to you for help, the odds are it won't be a demonic problem at all. But if it is, the discernment of spirits will indicate that to you. All right. Now, we're now starting at this point in the series, in order to deal with this properly, we're starting now to move into, I would assume, what is thus far the big question that everyone here is longing to get answered. And it's the talk that deals with, right, how do you cast demons out? All right, I mean, I take it that that is the one that everyone's really interested in, or based on what people have said to me so far it is. And we're starting to get there, and we're gonna deal with that fully. But before we do, all right, for the rest of tonight, we've got to go on a digression, all right? We've got to digress from the main subject, but it is important, because I want to widen out this whole thing about this gift of the discerning of spirits. I'm going to widen it out so you can see the full scope of what that gift is for in the Bible, all right? And the reason I'm going to do that is because the gift of the discerning of spirits is, is, is far wider than merely trying to establish whether or not individuals are demonized, all right? For instance, we saw, when we looked at 1 Corinthians 14, that the word diacresis, which is the word used for the discernment of spirits, that that word is used in regards to the actual gifts of the spirit themselves and in particular, prophecy. Go back into 1 Corinthians 14, and we're going to read that, that verse again. <coughs> when Paul says, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh or discern what is said. Alright? So, when we talk about testing things, when we talk about weighing things against the Bible, the gift of discerning of spirits is exactly what we're talking about. And I want to show you the main area that this links up with, all right? Because what we've got to see is that one of the main uses of the gift of discernment of spirits is discerning the presence of false teaching in the church, all right? And the link-up with that and the gifts of the Spirit and what Paul says about discern what the prophets say is quite simply because you'll find, particularly today in the churches, that most of the false doctrines going around have either originated from or are being confirmed by so-called gifts of the Holy Spirit. Can you see the point? For any false teaching that you come across, you will find in charismatic circles no shortage of prophecies that confirm the false teaching. You know, no shortage of, uh, you know, sort of like really well-known and respected leaders who have visions that confirm their false teaching. Can you see? So what we've got to be aware of is that this gift of the discernment of spirits must be used to test any so-called gifts of the Spirit, and must be used in order to establish 
where there is false teaching. Now, if you go over to 1 Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, and uh, I want to show you where uh, Paul deals with this when he writes to Timothy. Remember, Timothy was a leader of the church. Um, a church had been planted, and Timothy had been left for a few years to pastor it until he could raise up elders from within the church, all right? So Timothy is thus far leading a church on his own, and uh, Paul is writing to him. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're just going to read verse 1 to 3. Now, look what Paul says. <coughs> and you'll see here why I'm linking up discerning of spirits with false teaching. Now, the Spirit expressly says, and this is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, so he's talking about Christians, will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons through the pretensions of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and enjoin abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, there is so much in those three verses that Paul wrote to the leader of a church. In verse 1, he talks about there are going to be doctrines of demons. Now, by this, what he's talking about, that there are going to be teachings which are going to get into the church, but those teachings are going to originate from demons who are being deceitful because the teachings aren't true. And he's saying that what's going to happen is that evil spirits are going to get wrong teaching amongst Christians, and that wrong teaching will lead them to depart from the faith. But here's the subtlety. They will think that they're still adhering to the faith. Can you see the point? Evil spirits will originate teachings, Christians will get deceived by those teachings, and then the teachings they're believing are going to get them to live and act in a way that goes against what Jesus wants. But in their minds, they will think it's what Jesus wants. The evil spirits have therefore got them to depart from the faith while still thinking they're being faithful to the Lord. Can you see? Now, that... That is dangerous, and that is what is going on today. In such a powerful way, it is unbelievable. The church today is up to its eyeballs in teachings, which can be demonstrated to go against what the Bible teaches. There is no problem demonstrating that they go against the Bible, but the problem is that there's hardly anyone listening who wants to know. Can you see? People's eyes are closed. They're convinced that these things are absolutely right. And Paul says, therefore, these demons are deceitful because obviously they're deceiving people. So the situation that Paul warns about, and he says in the later times, so as more time goes on, the worse it's going to get. We're 2,000 years on from Paul writing this letter, and believe me, it's pretty bad. He says that what evil spirits are going to do they're going to plant wrong teaching in the minds of Christians. 
they're going to deceive them. Christians are going to believe those teachings and therefore live and act in a way that is contrary to what God wants. They have then departed from the faith, but they're convinced that they're in the faith. Can you see? Now that is so clever, that is the subtlety of what Satan is up to today. Now in verse 2, how do these doctrines come through? Look at this. Paul says that, you know, the demons are going to do this through the pretensions of liars whose consciences are seared. Now this is a really tough verse. Uh, I, can't, I can't hold back on what Paul is saying here, I'm afraid. Uh, you know, everything in me sort of doesn't actually want Paul to have said this, but he does. Where do most Christians get their teaching from? Leaders in the church. And Paul, obviously, he's dealing here with the fact that Christians are going to be deceived by wrong teaching. The wrong teaching is going to be put out by liars who are pretentious and whose consciences are seared. Leaders of churches. Paul is here talking about leaders of churches. And it's a tough thing to say. And he says, he's talking here about the Christian leaders and teachers who are propagating these false teachings that have originated with evil spirits, all right? Now, why, why then does he call them liars? And why does he talk about their consciences being seared? And why does he talk about pretensions? Well, I'll explain that to you and it will become clear. Now, it, it is strong, isn't it? He's talking about church leaders, he's calling them liars. He's saying their consciences are seared and he's saying they're pretentious. Let's, let's go through this. Now then, I want to make a distinction here, and this distinction is, is vital for you to get. And it's the distinction between teaching something that's wrong, all right, and being in the Propagating Doctrines of Demons League. Can you see that distinction? It's one thing to end up teaching and believing something that's wrong, but being in this propagating the doctrine of demons is a different, you know, sort of ball game. And I want to try and explain the difference, all right? I'll define it like this. There's a big difference between ending up being misled, honestly misled, misunderstanding things that the Bible says, all right, and uh, therefore misleading others. That, that's one thing. You can be honestly misled, you haven't understood, and therefore you'll mislead others. Now, that is a completely different thing from being what Paul would call a deceiver and therefore a deceiver of others. Okay. Now, I'll try and explain this. As I look back, I mean, I've been following law for 20 years. As I look back, I am uh, sort of like horrified now at some of the things I've believed in the past. Easily. Things which I now know, because I mean, <laughs> I'm 20 years old in the Lord, were absolute rubbish that they weren't scriptural, all right? But at the time, I, th I was thoroughly convinced they were what the Bible says, and I was totally wrong, all right? And also, let me say that I'm perfectly aware as well that now I can't get everything right. It is not possible for me or anything else to get everything right from the Bible. Of course not, okay? No one has full and exhaustive knowledge of the Bible, all right? I will doubt this in five years' time, look back on various things I'm teaching now and think, oh, 
I made a mistake there. And the reason I realised that I made a mistake was because in five years' time, I'll have a better understanding of the Bible, which will show up any mistakes I'm making now. All right? But the point is quite simply this. Whatever mistakes, whatever wrong teaching I have in the past been involved in and even put out, the point was, because I've now totally changed my mind about them, I was open to correction. They were honest mistakes. Can you see the point? And the proof that they were just merely honest mistakes is that when I realised from the Bible that I was wrong, I changed what I was believing and teaching in accordance to what the Bible says. Uh, I mean, you know, this is precisely why you've got to discern and test everything I teach. It's not possible for me to get everything right. I mean, example, um, I was, I mean, up to about 10 years ago, I was a great champion of the ecumenical movement. You know, let's, let's reclaim, God wants you to stay in your churches. He wants to reclaim the churches. Don't leave your church. Don't, don't start new churches. You see what I mean? Now, as I look back, I was wrong. I mean, I could not have been more wrong. And it was ultimately, ultimately, it was a greater understanding of the Bible that showed me that I was wrong. But here's the point. As soon as I realized I was wrong, I said, oops, sorry, Lord, I was wrong. I changed my thinking to what he wanted and therefore changed my teaching accordingly. Uh, another example, I used to believe that Jesus had a sinful nature. Now, I never believed he sinned, all right? But I believed he had a sinful nature just like us. Now, I was completely wrong. But the point was, when I realised I was wrong, I thought, oh, stupid me. And I changed my mind. Can you see? Now, that does not make me or anyone else in that category a deceiver. Someone who is open to correction and will realign with what the Bible says is not a deceiver. They were, they're merely people who are making honest mistakes and everyone does it, all right? The mistakes are different, all right? Different people make different mistakes about what the Bible says. But when you've got people, they're at this moment believing something and teaching something that's completely wrong. As soon as that's demonstrated to them, they change it. They are not deceivers. They are merely misleading other people because they have themselves been misled. And the moment they're corrected, they will realign themselves with the Bible. Now, it is not that type of leader that Paul is talking about here, all right? Therefore, what makes a deceiver then? I've told you that in the past, I've given out teaching which I now know in the light of fuller understanding of the Bible was wrong. Now, I'm saying I was myself misled and I misled others, all right? And it wasn't serious because I was open to being corrected about it, all right? So what makes a deceiver? Well, I'll tell you, a deceiver, by here I'm talking about Christians who are deceived and dangerous. It's not that they're misleading people because they've been misled. They are deceiving people because they've been deceived, and it's in a different league, and it's dangerous, and it's serious. And a deceiver is quite simply this. It's someone who wants to believe in whatever false teaching it is they're giving out. Can you see, they want to believe it. You see, there's something in it for their sinful nature. 
You see, in the past, when I've been teaching things that are wrong, as soon as I've realised it, I've changed it. Because there's no skin off my nose. Oh, Christ, if that's wrong, I'll change it. But a deceiver is someone that the wrong teaching he gives out or she gives out. They want it to be true. Can you see? They're not willing to face up to the fact it's wrong because there's something in it for their own sinful natures. And therefore, they won't let go of it. I.e., they've got an undealt with sin problem tied up with the false teaching that they're handing out. Examples. Take the prosperity doctrine preachers, this, this thing about that the closer you are to God, the richer you're going to get. Uh, and of course, give and it shall be given. So, so they do all these worldwide crusades, they send all these tapes out, and they say, of course, well, the thing is, you've got to give to God first and then he'll prosper you. So I want you to send me a check for, is he? Now then, those guys who are teaching prosperity doctrines why are they deceivers? I'll tell you, they're getting rich on their false teaching. Of course they don't want to give it up. They're driving around in Mercedes, they're living millionaire lifestyles, it's a scandal. So their false teaching, it's not that they've been misled, it's a sin thing. Their teaching is making them rich, there's something in it for their sinful nature. They are deceivers and they're dangerous. Another example, these churches where you have very authoritarian eldership, these shepherding churches where you can't do anything without the permission of your elder, okay? Now, that is deceiving people. Why? Well, because the leaders in a setup like that, they're getting power over people's lives. Their churches are totally beholding to them. I mean, their word is law, no matter what they say. Now, can you see? Their false teaching has become a deception to them because there's something in it for their own sinful natures, i.e. the prosperity teachers, they get rich. The authoritarian eldership teaching, they get power over people's lives. And, of course, you've guessed it, they get rich as well. Because your giving is set by them. It doesn't matter how many hours you spend with them proving from the Bible that what they're teaching is wrong they will not see it because they don't want to see it they want what they're teaching to be true because there's something in it for them now if satan has put a wrong idea in your mind if that wrong idea is something that you're determined it is going to be true no matter what you know i mean let's say that someone you know sort of say an elder of the church and satan planted the idea sort of like you know you know, these people, they ought to submit to your every word, is he? Now, if you're right with God, you're going to say, what a load of rubbish, and you'll test that by the word of God and see that it's absolutely lunatic. But if you've got undealt with sin in your heart and you're someone who wants to dominate people and manipulate people, that wrong idea will become, hey, that's brilliant, and you'll use it to further your own cause. Can you see? And to put yourself forward and get power over people's lives. As soon as that happens, you've then got a deceiver. Do you see what I mean? A deceiver is someone who's propagating false teaching, whatever it is, but refuses to admit it's false teaching and will twist the Bible every way they can to justify themselves. Because the false teaching they're into, there's something in it for their sinful natures that they're not prepared to repent of. All right. 
I'll give you another example. I mean, we looked at the prosperity doctrine teachers. I mean, they're mainly in America, thankfully. Uh, the authoritarian eldership, that's all over the place, sadly. Uh, let's take the pomp and ceremony brigade. Right, your Anglicans and your Baptists and your stuff like that, all right? Now, that is false teaching. Priesthood, special buildings, uniforms, you know, the Ring of Confidence, a pint of Guinness, that's what it looks like, a nice white head on the top, is he? And there they are parading up the aisles and up there in their pulpits and stuff like that. Now, that is a deception. Now, why? Well, I'll tell you, what's in it for their sinful natures? Pride. I mean, what is pomp and ceremony about if it's not, look at me? That is pomp and ceremony, isn't it? So can you see, the reason you've got so many Christians in the established churches, particularly, you know, sort of like Baptist pastors and Anglican vicars and stuff like that, they're spirit-filled Christians, they know the Bible, and if I gave the Bible to, uh, you know, sort of like a, a sensible child of 12 who had no preconceived ideas, said, right, read the Bible, they read the Bible and say, right, does the Bible say that you're supposed to have clergy and laity? They say, no. It's obvious. And those guys, those vicars out there, they know it as well. But they'll cling on to it for all they're worth. Why? Because it's their position in society. It's their unfair advantage. It's pride. They stand back from the herd. They're the vicar, you're the plebs. Whereas the Bible teaches that we're all plebs. You see? So again, that is a deception and it's dangerous. Now sometimes you will meet people, and I have done, few and far between, who were once ministers of that ilk. And when they got to understand the Bible better, they upped and they got out. Now, they're men you can respect. But sadly, the vast majority, it seems to me, rock bottom, they're not interested in what the Bible says. Can you see? Because there's something in that false teaching for their own sinful natures. And when it's the pomp and ceremony and, 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 and all that, that brigade, it is pride. It is pure ego. It's the position and everyone looking at you. All right. Whatever false teaching there is, I mean, it's like it would not be possible to list every false teaching, obviously. There's too many of them. But if you could, if you went through each one, you will find that there is something in that false teaching that appeals to at least some people's sinful natures. Is it? Because if you're simply mistaken and open for God to correct you, then one day you'll be reading a passage from the Bible and you'll think, oh, I'm wrong. Oh, sorry, Lord. And from that day onwards, that false teaching is gone. You've changed it as the Word of God has taught you. You were simply misled. But deceivers, I mean, why do you think in churches there are so many parts of the Bible that, I mean, if you could go to every... Um, every church in this country every day, or somehow if you could get round the whole lot and, and manage to hear every sermon that was preached and every time they read the Bible, it's the bits they won't read that are the giveaway. It's all the passages they skip. It's all the subjects they won't deal with. And I'll tell you, it's because they know that the Bible is going against them but they turn a blind eye to it. They are deceivers, and they are deceiving people. So then, such people are, according to Paul, number one, 
they are liars. Now he's talking about Christian leaders. I mean, you know, I, I didn't say this, Paul said this, this is strong stuff. He says, number one, they're liars. And the reason they're liars is because they're not teaching whatever it is they're teaching because they're convinced from the Bible that it's true and they're a lover of truth. I mean, it's like when I used to teach that Jesus had a sinful nature, I did that because I was really convinced the Bible said it and I was saying it as a lover of truth. And when eventually people got it through me thick head I was wrong, I was then just as happy to teach the exact opposite as a lover of truth. But these men, they're liars because what they're teaching is not coming from the fact that they're convinced it's from the Bible and they're saying it as lovers of truth. They merely want it to be true. They are determined that it will be true and they refuse to be corrected from the Bible. Therefore, can you see they're liars? They're lying to themselves. They're lying to other people. I mean, if I was talking to somebody and, uh, and let's see, they said, for instance, um, well, I really, I really want to know whether it is right to be an Anglican. I really, it's really important for me to know whether I go to an Anglican church, I communion, I'm even thinking about going into holy orders, you know, because the Holy Spirit's leading me that way, all right? And they say, and I really want to know if this is true, all right? And you said, right, okay, let's, uh, let's get together, we'll get our Bibles out, we'll go through it. Now, let's say I then spent an hour with them, all right? And I found that every point I put to them from the Bible, Rather than answer it, they just skip round it and then went on to something else. I conclude, when they say they really want to know, they're lying. Can you see? When somebody says they want to know and you then offer them the data that they need and they refuse to even look at it, they're lying to you. Can you see? That's what Paul says. These men are liars because there is no truth in them. What they're teaching is not truth. But their hearts are not truth, because they're not loving truth. If you loved truth, and Jesus is the truth, if you loved Jesus and therefore loved truth, the moment you realised that you were believing something incorrectly about the Bible, you would change it. And not only that, you'd be delighted, you'd be thrilled that you'd realise you were wrong. But not these men. They're determined that what they're teaching is going to stay. It's not going to be tampered with, regardless of what the Bible says. They're liars. Now, the second thing Paul says is that their consciences are seared. <coughs> what does he mean by that? What he means by that is this. They have repeatedly ignored and drowned out the Holy Spirit's conviction in their hearts about it. You see, when you're believing something that's wrong, the Holy Spirit will work on you, convicting you, bring people to correct you. But these men, obviously, to get to where they are, they've turned a blind eye to their error so long, they've drowned out the Holy Spirit's convicting voice so long that their consciences, because remember the Holy Spirit convicts through conscience, their consciences are now seared. Now, this, this word seared, uh, you sear something with a hot iron. So if you've got a hot iron and, you know, someone put a hot iron on your arm, they're searing you with a hot iron. Now, the point is, if your skin is badly burnt, uh, when the scar tissue grows back, uh, you'll never have much feeling in that bit of skin that was burnt. You lose your sense of feeling 
where you've been really burnt badly. Now these men, their consciences are seared like scar tissue. Can you see? The Holy Spirit can't get through to them anymore. They've, they've drowned their consciences out for so long that their consciences aren't working anymore. Can you see? There's no response in them to the truth. There's no response in them to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They're just completely handed over to whatever deception it is they're into. Why? Because there's something in that deception for their sinful natures, and they love their sinful natures more than they love the Lord. They're not disciples, they're simply pretending to be. So we've seen they're liars, because they're not interested in truth, and their consciences are seared, because they've drowned out the Holy Spirit's conviction for so long. And then the third thing, Paul talks about them, you know, about their pretensions. Why are they pretentious? Well, I'll tell you. What can you call anyone who thinks they know better than the Word of God than pretentious? Is it not the final arrogance to think that we can know better than the Lord? I mean, how dare flesh and blood, when reading the Bible, lay the bits aside that you don't want because you think you've got a better idea? I mean, that is pretension to the nth degree. See, these men forget that they're specks of dust with an attitude problem, because that's what we all are. And they think they're so big, you know, and I mean, often they're important, and they speak at big conferences. And uh, I mean, I've actually, you know, <laughs> you can get to the point where you, consider, you know, where you consider yourself to be beyond correction, and no one is beyond correction, except Jesus, because the Lord is the only one who never makes mistakes and never sins. But these men, you try and correct them, you see the reaction that you get. You'll be the devil attacking them, you'll be a troublemaker, you'll be anything except what you are, someone trying to correct a brother. So these men, they are incredibly pretentious. And in verse 3, Paul gives an example of such false teaching. Now this isn't an example that is around today, but he talks about men who forbid marriage and enjoin abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. One of the false teachings that was around uh, in the early church, because the early church, they were brought up in a Greek culture. Although it was the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire succeeded the Greek Empire, alright? So much of the culture and the ideas and the philosophy around came not from the Romans but from the Greeks. And the Greeks had this belief that matter was evil. Uh, that when, well, that God didn't create matter. Uh, the real God, that, I mean, matter came into being because of things that lesser gods got up to and did wrong, alright? And they saw that matter was evil and only spirit was pure. Now, obviously, when Jesus comes amongst them and says, look, I'm God and I've become a man, I mean, that, that didn't go down too well, because they believed that to be in a body was to be in a prison house. And so this wrong idea was that, you know, you had to sort of, like, beat yourself and starve yourself, and you mustn't, under any circumstances, enjoy yourself. Can you see? Now, that false teaching got into the church, and you had these church leaders who were forbidding people marriage. Now I wonder why. Well, I'll tell you, because if you're married, you'll enjoy lovemaking. And that went against their belief, because matter is evil, and for them, sexual pleasure was the ultimate evil. 
And this wrong teaching came into the church, all right? And with it came loads and loads of rules and regulations, and they had a thousand things that they said you're not allowed to do, but that the Bible said was okay. Now, can you see the power that gave these leaders over the lives of Christians under them? It's authoritarian eldership, really. These men decided what you ate, where you went, how you, know, how you lived your life. And so Paul gives this as an example. They were false teachers, and he's saying, look, they're liars. Have nothing whatsoever to do with it, okay? Now then, these doctrines of demons that Paul is talking about, because as we come back to the idea of discerning, what we've got to see is that these doctrines of demons are all over the place, and you've got to discern them. Now, there are two areas in which these doctrines work, all right? Before I go on to that, there's something very important I want to show you now. Go to Matthew chapter 16. Now, the thing that I'm going to cover now, we will be back to later on in this series, but it is fundamental to our understanding of this whole subject of demonology and being demonized and stuff like that. Now, go to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 23. <clears throat> Now, this is when Peter tried to talk Jesus out of the cross, all right? <coughs> he didn't manage, all right? Now, I don't know what your version says, but it will probably be nearly as wrong as mine. My version says this, Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. <coughs> Now, that is a completely wrong translation. Now, what's happened here is that Satan has actually managed to speak through Peter. Does that mean that Peter was demonized by Satan? Well, in the Greek here, all right, that for, when my Bible translates it that he says, you're not on the side of God but of men, that, that is a really way out translation. The actual verb here is phreneo, and it's from the Greek noun phren, which means the mind. And a literal translation is this, that Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, all right, and he's speaking to Peter, and he says, for these aren't the thoughts of God, but of men. So what's happened is that Satan has had a channel through Peter and spoke to Jesus. Peter, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get thee behind me, Satan, for these are the thoughts of men and not God. He doesn't say these are the thoughts of demons and not God. He says these are the thoughts of men and not God. Now, here's the point. What you've got here, and we're going to follow this up in later talks, there is a complete identification between man's natural thinking and Satan's natural thinking. And what we're going to see is that in the same way that when someone is born again, they become one with God, before you're born again, you're actually one with Satan. Not meaning that Satan is in you and that demons are in you, but the point is you are completely identified with Satan and evil spirits as an unbeliever. Go to James, the epistle of James. And uh, find chapter 3 and verse 15, all right? Just one little verse, all right? 
James says, this wisdom is not as comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Now what he's talking about is man's wisdom as opposed to God's wisdom. And we know that because he says it is earthly. That word unspiritual should read soulish, and we are souls, men and women are souls. So it is earthly, soulish, i.e. of the human spirit, demonic. So the point is there is a complete identification between the sin human sinful nature and Satan and evil spirits themselves. Remember, Jesus said to unbelievers, you are of your father, the devil. Now, what we've got here is one of the reasons why so many things, in actual fact, get attributed to evil spirits rather than the sinful nature. And we saw this a couple of talks ago, didn't we? We saw all kinds of things which get put down, well, if this happens, it must be a demon. I mean, say someone commits adultery, they say, well, it must be a demon. Or someone murders someone, oh, you know, they must have a demon. And it's crazy. And we saw that demons get blamed for loads and loads of things that human beings are quite capable of themselves. And the idea of putting it, oh, you know, a demon made me do it, is purely an excuse to try and get out of our own accountability to God. Now, you see, the truth of the matter is this, and this is a truth that a lot of Christians don't like and they try and edge round. It's simply this. The nature of an evil spirit, or even Satan himself, and the human sinful nature are totally alike. You see? The nature of an evil spirit, or even Satan himself, is no different from our natures as sinful human beings. Do you get the point? We've got a new nature in us because we're born again, and our new nature is just like the Lord. But our old nature is just like the devil. Can you see? So, in broad terms, all right, Satan and evil spirits and fallen man want the same things. If their natures are the same, they want the same things and they are much alike in their natures. Now, that doesn't mean that humans are like puppets and you've either got a demon's hand working you or God's hand working you. What I'm saying is we have got free will. But because our sinful natures are so like Satan's and demons, all right, therefore, can you see how easy it is for demons to manipulate people through their sinful natures? Because they want much the same thing. Is he? I mean, it's like, say, for instance, if someone does something wrong, someone, someone talks to you rudely at work or something. Now then, what does Satan want you? What would he love? You know, he'd love it if he could get you resenting them. I mean, someone is rude to you. Now, Satan would love it. Oh, let's, let's get them resenting them. But what does your sinful nature want to do? It wants to do exactly the same thing. Our sinful nature quite naturally wants to do what Satan wants us to do. And that is why these doctrines of demons are so hard to budge from people's minds. Can you see? This false teaching is demonically inspired, but it fits the sinful nature like a glove. Can you see? And it seems so natural and logical. I mean, after all, if all the false teaching around was that easy to see through, there wouldn't be that much around, would there? 
But you see, people's sinful natures want it. I mean, Paul talks about in the last days that people, they won't go for true teaching. You know, he's talking about Christians. And he says, they'll just get the teachers in who tickle their ears. Is he? Ear ticklers. Not, not men who teach them what the Bible says, but men who teach them what they want to hear. And so, therefore, Satan is able to manipulate people through the coincidence of what he wants and what their sinful natures want. Now, therefore, it's vital for us to be aware of the fact that as Satan seeks to deceive us, our sinful natures are really tailor-made for the job of being deceived. And that is why we've got to stick so closely to the Word of God, all right? Because Satan wants to manipulate us by us going with our sinful natures rather than going with the new nature that we've got in Jesus and with what the Bible actually says. Now, I said earlier that the doctrines of demons work in two ways, and it's important to understand that, all right? Firstly, you get general deceptions which are a kind of thrown over the, the whole of the human race in general. Doctrines of demons or demons are coming up with teachings which are meant to enslave human beings in general and keep them away from Jesus, alright? So doctrines of demons work throughout the whole world. For instance, Marxism is a doctrine of demons and it keeps millions of people from becoming Christians and therefore being saved. Um, evolutionary theory, Darwinism, that's a doctrine of demons. That's not what the Bible says and there's no scientific evidence, in fact, quite the contrary. But it keeps people away from the truth of the Lord. Uh, Freud and Jung, the whole modern psychology thing is a doctrine of demons. It's basically a load of squit. It is completely untrue, but people are believing it. It's keeping them away from the Lord. Religions go into this category. You know, sort of Muslims and, you know, all the religions in the world, Baha'i. What do you think? Like, they're doctrines of demons. Demons have come up with this to deceive people. You get humanism. Humanism, that odd belief, there is no God, but man is wonderful. That's really weird. I can't make any sense of that. But it's the belief that there is no God, but man is evolving into this really wonderful ethical creature, and one day we're all going to love each other to bits. That's humanism, and it's just a question of evolving a little bit more, they say. Uh, you get occultism, that's a doctrine of demons, enslaving and deceiving millions of people. You get materialism, the belief that life consists of, of what, you know, get out there, spend, enjoy, pleasure, 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 entertainment, entertainment. Now, can you see that wrong beliefs like that are holding the world in bondage? That is doctrines of demons being disseminated as various different philosophies amongst non-Christians. Now, don't be surprised that these philosophies all disagree with each other, because Satan's not interested in truth. He's just interested in deceiving people and preventing them from becoming Christians. So whereas Marxism and occultism are diametrically opposed to each other, Satan is quite happy to chuck occultism out at the same time as he's chucking Marxism out over here. The fact that they contradict each other, you should expect that. Satan is not interested in truth. He's interested in enslaving people through wrong teaching. But the problem that we face as Christians, and this is where discernment comes in, is the thing that we saw when Paul wrote to old Tim, saying that, the doc you know, that these demons are going to get doctrines out tailor-made to deceive Christians. 
all right? The idea of them to get you going off at a tangent so you depart from the faith, but make sure that you think that you're actually being faithful to the Lord. But what's interesting is that the doctrines of demons, the false teaching that you get amongst, you know, in the church, are simply variants of the kind of false teaching that I've just listed that is out there in the world. For instance, the prosperity doctrines. What's that but materialism? Gizzy, it's materialism, but tailor-made to deceive Christians. Inner healing, all right, all this kind of healing of the memories. What is that? It's modern psychology. It's pure Freud and Jung, but tailor-made to deceive Christians. False demonologies. And my goodness, earlier on in some of the earlier talks, we've seen that, I mean, sort of some ministry of supposedly casting out demons is virtually occultic itself. Can you see? It's occultism tailor-made to deceive Christians. The shepherding movement, you know, like the authoritarian eldership I was talking about, where all the plebs, you know, they all have to do exactly what the leaders say. I mean, there you've got a kind of a Marxism, you know, a, a sort of autocracy, you know, a kind of a totalitarian rule by the elders. Can you see, it's one of the doctrines of demons in the world, but dressed up and changed in order to deceive Christians. And then you get the whole pomp and ceremony brigade, you know, like the clericalism and priestcraft, as it's called. I mean, that is just, in the world, Satan comes up with false religions. So what's he done for Christians? He's come up with a false Christian religion, a religious version of the Bible. And, uh, I mean, I stopped being religious 20 years ago. But the pomp and ceremony brigade, or, you know, the C of E and, and all this kind of, you know, the clericalism and dog collars and that whole scene is simply world religions tailor-made and slipped into the church in order to deceive Christians, all right? Now, the point is this. All this has got to be discerned. Everything that you come across, all these teachings going out in the church have got to be tested by the Bible. But where does discernment come in? All right, well, I'll tell you. The gift of discernment as your protection against false teaching is quite simply this. It's your early warning system. It's your early warning system. All right? It's DEFCON 2. All right? That's what the gift of discernment is. Now, <coughs> maybe you'll move, you know, maybe you go and visit other churches or Christian friends or you read books or something like that. And let's say you come across a doctrine or a revelation, all right, it's being put about, it's very influential, but it's new to you, all right? It's new to you. Now, maybe the watchdog in your spirit smells a rat. Do you know what I mean? You think, I smell a rat here. That is the discernment of spirits working in you in regards to false teaching. Can you see? It's your watchdog smelling a rat. Now, what it does is this. It puts you on your guard sufficiently to ensure that you really question that doctrine, revelation, or whatever it is, that you go into it, you really question it, and you thoroughly test it before you swallow it, hook, line, and sinker. Can you see? It's the early warning system inside of you that makes you hold back 
and investigate further and really test by the word of God in conjunction with mature people, all right, before you go for it and say, wow, this is of God, I'm committing myself to it, you see. Now then, it might be that any such doctrine or whatever, it might be that it proves to be absolutely of God and you'll find that it was your early warning system malfunctioning. But that's no problem. Because if your early warning system, if your discernment makes you investigate thoroughly before you accept it, if that investigation leads you to realise, hey, this is of God, well, that's brilliant, isn't it? Can you see, you can't lose with discerning false teaching. Can you see? So, therefore, it is much better to end up having really held back on something only to later discover it was of God than to be the sort of person who jumps in at the deep end, swallowing everything hook, line and sinker, which guarantees that you're going to end up, end up under the influence of these demons who are, you know, distributing these doctrines all over the place. And let me say as well that anything that I teach here in the context um, of our Tuesday nights or, so, or whatever, okay, if ever anything I say makes you feel like that, Maybe it sort of like makes you think, hey, you know, my, my watchdog is smelling a rat Ooh, in what Beresford is saying, all right? Let me say, for heaven's sake, if that happens, do come and talk to me about it, is it? That would be vitally important, because after all, if you came and spoke to me and said, hey, look, this, this thing you're saying, you know, I'd really like to talk to you more about that, because it sounds a bit dodgy to me, okay? Now, if we talked, it might be that you'd misunderstood what I'd said, and talking about it, you'd, oh goodness, yeah, I was just getting the wrong end of the stick, no problem. But let's say, because I'm, you know, I mean, I have no uh, infallible shield against being deceived. I'm, I do my best, but I'm as vulnerable as anyone else. And if I ever do start saying something that is wrong, then maybe it's going to be by you coming up and saying, now look, hang on, can we really go into that a bit, because it's a bit dodgy. It might be you doing that that makes me realise, oh yeah, of course, I was getting that wrong, thanks. Can you see? This is where discernment comes in, in regards to false teaching, all right? Now, it boils down quite simply to this. On the whole Christ, you know, Christian scene today, there's a kind of an atmosphere that surrounds it, which needs sniffing out very carefully. And I'll tell you why. It's because they're, they're, there's poisonous gases in that atmosphere that if you breathe them in, as it were, over a period of time, you're going to end up in trouble. Can you see? Uh, there was a documentary on tonight, in fact, I set the video for it, uh, in the States. It's sort of like going into the fact that in some areas, the pollution, they've got 60,000 different chemicals in the air in some parts of America, and it's actually now poisoning people on a long-term basis. Now, can you see, spiritually, that is what's happening today. And you've got to know where the no-go areas are. Can you see what I mean? You've got to know when the atmosphere is dangerous to breathe. You've got to sniff it out and all that demonic atmosphere surrounding Christian churches today, you've got to realise it's there. It shouldn't be breathed in. You've got to stay away from it. You've got to pray for the nose of a spiritual bloodhound because ultimately that is what the gift of discernment of spirits is. 
So tonight we've seen what discernment of spirits is and we've applied it, we've widened it right out to see that one of its uses is not just to establish whether or not individuals have got demons that need casting out, but this gift of discernment must be used in order to establish whether input coming at you from Christian sources, whether it is kosher and the Lord, or whether it's the doctrine of demons and it is Satan working to try and deceive you. Because once those deceptions are accepted, however innocently, it is very, very difficult to get free of them. So therefore, one of the main uses of the gift of discernment of spirits is quite simply to sniff out and to avoid and to identify false teaching or the doctrines of demons. Now, next time, the talk that everyone's been waiting for, because next time we will be dealing with discerning demonization in individuals and how you get the demons out, okay? So we come back to that next time.